Thanks for watching this episode of Turning to Him. I invite you to just take a few seconds right now at the beginning and subscribe to this channel so that you can get more videos like this in your feed. Thanks again. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this episode of Turning to Him. I am here with Kenneth McNay, who has uh, been gracious enough to join me here. We've, we've tried to do this a couple of times, and the, our calendar's just never connected, so I appreciate you sticking with it. How are you doing, Kenneth? Yeah, I'm doing good today. Good, good. Uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, so I am born and raised in the church. So my mother's side of the family has many generations. The, they've got uh, somebody that was baptized by Joseph Smith Sr. So really? in, 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 yeah, in the, in the lineage, you know, someone that, it, that, that came into the church that early. Um, on my father's side, uh, my father is a convert to the church. And we learned later in life that his, his parents were converts to the church before him, and they had gone inactive for a time. And then he got in contact with the church in high school and went the church. So when he came to his parents and kind of explained this, they're like, well, actually, we're, we've heard of this before. Um, so he was, he was not raised in the church, but uh, he, you know, my parents have raised all of us in the church. I'm number four of six. So we have a bit of a, bit of a larger family. And for that, uh, for that time period, that was pretty normal. Sure. And I'm a father of three. Okay. So we've got half the size. Yeah. <laughs> as well. I've heard that four is the new six. Is okay. <laughs> so we have a lot. Yes. Yeah, so yeah. I know. Um, looking around even at, at, you know, wards that we've been a part of, you know, it's the numbers are changing. The, the, the demographics are changing as time has gone by. How so? What do you see? Well, I saw in the military wards, uh, so I spent time in the military. I did, I did about six years as an enlisted member of the U.S. Army. Um, so we were near Fort Bragg. Uh, so we, we lived near Fort Bragg in North Carolina. And I would say from members that we saw there, um, four or five kids was about the, uh, was about the cap. So I got, we're done now. Four to five kids, we're about done. Um, and I think part of that may be that the military gives a lot of stability for a family. They can find a lot of support. Um, it, it's, it's kind of an interesting experience. Some people can find the military is very destabilizing for families. Mm -hmm. And some people can find that it brings a lot of stability and, and structure for families. And I think both of those are true. It just depends on the experience that you have. Um, so I, I, I tended to see members that were, were looking at, Four or five family members, and that was about the top. That's that's a good time to stop. And then, as we've moved away from military wards, um, two to three kids, sometimes four. It's kind of it's kind of what we see more of. Really, bigger families in the military wards. Yeah, that kind of bit kind of tended to be the thing we would see. Now, where are you living now? So I'm near Raleigh. Um, I work for Cisco Systems, so we've moved up to near their, their RTP campus. That's the Research Triangle Park. So we're very close to Raleigh. We're in uh, the Apex Stake, 
So for those that know the Raleigh area, the temple is located in the apex stake. So pretty close to the Raleigh temple. Well, that's great. That's fantastic. Um, okay, so I mean, you mentioned that you spent time in the military. Is that uh, where you met your wife? Is that where you started your family? So somewhat. Um, I also served as a missionary. So my wife and I meeting has to do with serving as a missionary. Okay. Um, I left as a missionary from kind of the Seattle area, outside Seattle. Uh, this is where my family was living. And I was serving in Campinas, Brazil. Um, and by, by happenstance, I was there when the Campinas Temple was under construction and when it had an op open house and dedication. Uh, so I got to participate in all of those, at least to some degree, while I was serving. Uh, there was a sister missionary that served in Campinas, Brazil, and I took quite a crush on her. And she's from the Seattle area. And so she returned home earlier than me because a shorter mission service period. And I returned home and we kind of chatted and talked and, and got in contact. Um, and so, so really the first time I met my, my current wife, uh, it was a New Year's Eve kind of end of year multi-stake young single adult event. Um, and she had invited me. She knew my older brother was going to be coming along. So she invited one of her friends to sort of make a double date of it. Yes. So uh, we met, we kind of did our double date and um, my brother wasn't, wasn't really enamored with, uh, with, <laughs> with, with the blind date, but she and I kept in contact and attended some other young single adult events in the area. And uh, um, so we kept in contact for a little bit and pretty quickly I contacted this, this mission friend and I was like, I don't want to be rude, but I think I'm going to date your friend. And this friend contacted her. I was like, hey, I don't want to be like, I don't want to steal your boy, but I think I'm going to, you know, go date him. Um, <laughs> and she later kind of related this story that uh, she's like, this friend has moved away, moved out of the state uh, of, of, of Washington State. She wanted to try and find a way to bring her back in that circle again and she thought you know if I can teach Kenneth to be a really good boyfriend maybe maybe she'll come back to the state and they'll date that maybe that could work out for him um, and that's not quite the direction that it went uh, we dated for a time and then I I you was split off and I joined the military um, and it was during that period of the military I came back I was visiting family for sort of a, the end of year holiday season for Christmas and New Year's. And I, she was coming back after having completed um, her entire schooling. She completed a bachelor's degree and was going home. And she already had uh, you know, a new job lined up in Las Vegas and was just visiting at home and kind of sent out an email to everybody that she could think of. If you're home, like it'd be nice to get together. It'd be nice to do something, just something social, something if we can, if we can ma make something match up. And I guess I was the only one that responded. So we went on a couple of dates and uh, she's like, I, I'm going to come out and see you in North Carolina because that's where I was. And it already sent me to North Carolina at that point. And so she moved out here and we got married pretty quickly. And that's, that's kind of how we met. We met because of this friend that I got a crush on in the mission field. 
That's great. Yet another reason to serve a mission. Yeah, it's it's true. <laughs> it helps you meet people. That's right. That's neat. Okay, so so you all get married. You move. Uh, you're in the Fort Bragg area. Mm-hmm. And, uh, to walk us through what happens next. Well, during during the time that I finished my military service, we stayed there in Fort Bragg. I was assigned to Fort Bragg for for all of my six years in the service. Uh, so we saw families come and go. And we saw we did see families that left Fort Bragg and came back to Fort Bragg. Uh, we we just never moved away. And after that, I, I also attended college at a community college there near Fort Bragg at, at Fayetteville Tech. So okay. we stayed additional years there while I attended a community college program. Uh, and then once I graduated there, then we ended up moving up into the Raleigh area uh, for the job with uh, with Cisco. Okay. So we had about five years there together, kind of the tail end of my military service and those, those three years of attending college. So we had five years there. Um, we hadn't had any children at that point, although it wasn't through some special effort to not have children. It was just it had not happened. Yeah. Yeah. So when we move up into uh, into this new area. We've suddenly got new health care <laughs> through, through work. Um, the military will give you pretty good health care, but there are some constraints that were a little frustrating. And so my wife knew that we probably would need fertility care, like actual medical care for fertility. And the military wasn't super helpful at that. And going to a civilian doctor after, you know, that kind of helped progress things, but it didn't quite work out. So we did a couple of different types of treatments while we were there in Fayetteville area. And then we moved up here. Suddenly I had, you know, I had coverage and really fantastic coverage and we could start to pursue additional treatment plans. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think there was also kind of an experience for me. We had had, we had had dogs as pets and there was definitely a point as I was getting a little older that I realized these dogs will not grow up. Yeah. They, They've grown as much as they will grow. <laughs> yes. Um, and so if I wanted a more mature fathering experience, it, it couldn't be with the dogs. I, I needed to have kids. And that really helped me shift some of my uh, attitude about fertility care that had been a little stick in the mud. Okay. And some of my attitude about our relationship. Um, so... We married civilly and we moved up into the Raleigh area. I finally kind of thought we need to get sealed. I think I think we need to make some preparations and and make some changes. And uh, that largely needed to happen from my side, not from my wife. Mm -hmm. So I worked with my eldest quorum president, the bishop at the time, and was pretty clear. You know, I've got to make some changes. I think I need to, you know, properly prepare to return to the temple course i've served as a missionary so i've obviously been to the temple i've attended the temple i know what the experience is like but i had had a lapse of a number of years so we made some progress there and uh, so there was things happening spiritually and things happened kind of emotionally with this idea of like if i really want a different fathering experience it needs to be with kids not with dogs or other pets and we suddenly had economically you know a path forward um, I, I was very generously paid and, and I always have been here and it's been 
an amazing blessing, the generosity of, of getting well paid. And um, that was a big change for us. The military pays pretty well. Some people can really enjoy it, but we found it very challenging. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and especially spending time out, outside the military, just going to college. Uh, my wife worked in, in the school district. And so we suddenly found ourselves with a much more generous path forward. Yes. We, we received IVF care. So IVF, uh, that's um, in vitro fertilization. Mm-hmm. And it's becoming much more common that people have to look towards IVF care as one of their pathways to fertility. So we're always pretty comfortable talking about it. Um, we know that not everybody understands all the depth of it and what goes into it. Um, we got comfortable with learning the, the clinical terms, learning the, the medicine that goes beyond, beyond just, well, you, the two people love each other and get together and this is what happens. So, right. Right. Um, and so my wife and I found there were other couples that needed to learn more. So we've always been pretty open about just talking about our experiences um, and, uh, and talking about not just our experiences with IVF, but other treatments as well that we've, we've used. Um, so IVF is an interesting little system. So they'll start with, and, and no one should take me as a medical professional, so this is going to be summarized really sure. shortly. So going to start with some hormone treatments to help eggs mature. It's kind of the first step. And then they're going to harvest eggs very carefully and combine a sample of, of semen so that those can fertilize and begin to grow. And for our doctor, he's got a very specific pattern. He's, he's worked on his, uh, on his procedure for a long time and has a very good success rate with his procedure. And so they were going to give a certain number of days that it, these, these new little blastocysts begin to uh, develop. And then they're frozen in pairs. So you have two in each little tiny vial. They're frozen. And then each time that you're going to go do an attempt to try and get an implant, then it's two. It's two little blastocysts that have to try and, and, and root in into the uterus. Okay. And after that egg harvest, he also wants a little period of time for no hormones, <laughs> no treatments. Let, let the woman's body kind of self-regulate back to a more normal state. Yeah. Clear out some of those, those hormones that have been used to mature the eggs. Um, so we had a little waiting period. So the, um, we had the egg harvest and, and, and the, the little freezing. So at this point, we know we've got 10 little embryos that are progressing. And that means five little vials that are frozen. So that means five attempts. And that's, that's what we know is happening. How long have you been married at this point? Is this six years? Or have you progressed past <laughs> yeah. that? Yeah, that's about six years married. It's about okay. six-ish. Uh, I guess maybe we're on about pretty close to a seven-year mark. Okay. Pretty close. Um, and so, yeah, this is really good. The timeline is a good reminder. So at seven years, we got sealed in the Raleigh Temple. So we've oh, been married civilly for seven years and then got sealed in the Raleigh Temple. So we had started this IVF process just, you know, kind of before, just before this, um, this sealing process. This okay. time. Um, and then we, we 
started doing some attempts. Uh, so the first attempt, nothing worked out. And we're like, okay, we'll just, we, we give it about a month and we try again. Um, there's a little bit of hormone treatments in preparation for an implantation. And that's to help get the uterus, the womb lining ready. And, and it's, but it's very simple. Mm-hmm. It's not the kind of aggressive hormones as before. Okay. Um, so there's a little bit of hormones and the second attempt takes. So we've got two babies on the way. Now, I say we have two babies on the way, but what we found out the very first week that we go back to our fertility doctor, we've got a number of weeks we're going to visit with the fertility doctor and have imaging. And then at a certain point, he's going to pass us off to our actual, you know, perinatal team. Okay. So they're going to make sure we're moving along and then, and then they're going to do a handover. So the first week we go back and we do imaging and they're like, okay, we've got one little little blastocyst, or, or I think maybe it's a zygote at that point, one little zygote and one little heartbeat. Great. Okay. We're like, okay, great. We've got one. That's fantastic. That's all right. We're on our way. We're, we're on the pathway now. You know, we're, on, we're on. And so we returned to him in a, in a few weeks doing imaging again, checking that everything's growing at the right rate. Um, blood work is all good, things like that. And so he's doing the imaging. And he says, okay, well, last time you visited, we had, you know, a little zygote with, with one heartbeat. And he says, um, well, guess what? Here's the twin. It was hiding <laughs> off in the corner. I didn't see it, but there you go. We got two. And it's far enough away that he can say, okay, you know, like I said, we unfreeze two of them in the little vial. Both of them have taken. This is, this is not the egg split. This is two unique, um, two unique little embryos that, that grew and, and successfully implanted and are growing. So now all of a sudden we're very surprised that, okay, we've got two on the way. And we're making this progress in the pregnancy. Um, we get to about week 11 and that's this handover time. He says, okay, now you need to you know, hand over to your, 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 your medical team. Like, and that's already been arranged. Um, now, my wife has some some risks because of IVF and, and fertility and then just some other factors of risk. So they're watching us very carefully. And as we're progressing, they're like, you know, one of these is really undersized, really small. We really would expect it to be larger. In fact, both of them are kind of growth restricted. And when we see twins, that's not abnormal to have them a little bit growth restricted. But baby A looks a lot smaller than, than we'd even expect. Um, so we're, you know, we're just a little concerned. We're going to have you come in much more often. So, I, so I think we're at the point of like every two or three weeks, we're going in a little bit of checkup, some blood work, some imaging, just to make sure things are moving along. And as far as they can tell, everything's healthy. Everything's moving along properly, but there's, but the babies just look smaller than they would anticipate. Okay. Um, so we get to week 18 of the pregnancy and week 18 for us. And I think for many pregnancies, but for, for us, it was, that was anatomy week. So this is the week that we're going to go for imaging. We've got a long uh, appointment planned and they're going to go through the anatomy for both babies, make sure everything's good. Yep. Um, so they go through baby a baby a is for all of the imaging has been very active. 
have been moving around a lot that they're just like, well, it's just small. It's just a small baby. Sure. It's okay. It's a physically active baby in the womb, but you know, we're just concerned, but they go through baby ACE anatomy from, from top to bottom. Uh, and it's a little girl and um, everything's fine. There's like, everything's fine. It's just small. That's all. And then at that point, we've been through quite a long appointment. So we're kind of tired. We don't really take notice that the imaging tech goes through baby B and it's just a lot quieter. She's not showing off all the different measurements. She's not pointing out all the different anatomy and we're not thinking much about it. And then, and then she's like, okay, I'm going to go talk to our perinatal specialist and he's going to come in and, you know, the doctors, we've already met the doctor. We already know him, but you know, so she, she goes, tells the doctor everything she's got in the imaging and then he comes in and, um, I'm really grateful that like the way he expressed himself was remarkably skilled. I think as he comes in, he says, you know, baby A is totally healthy. There's nothing wrong with, with baby B. There is a constellation of abnormalities that we see in her development. And it's known as serenomalia or mermaid syndrome. Now, he kind of leaves us to just look that up later on our own. He doesn't go on to a long description of, of, of mermaid syndrome. So I'll talk a little bit about that in a moment. But then he just kind of says, you know, um, sometimes this is not very serious, but you do not have a best case scenario. And her body will not be compatible with life. So there we are at week 18, being very clearly spoken to by a medical professional. You've got a healthy baby. And you got a baby that won't live outside the womb. And, and so, you know, he, he lets us talk a little bit and lets us, let's, you know, he gives us some advice about what we should do. And ultimately he says, you know, my professional opinion, um, you have a certain level of risk in this pregnancy being a twin pregnancy. And he says, I don't recommend that you attempt a selective uh, like a selective abortion, because then you put introduce risk. He says, so my recommendation professionally is you move forward, let both babies continue to develop as long as they possibly will, and try to deliver both babies. And and uh, and and that's that's what I, that's what he recommended. And we're like, well, that's totally fine. That's absolutely fine with us. Um, I don't think we would have cho chosen a selective abortion if it had been less risky. We just, we just would have moved forward. So mermaid syndrome is a condition in which the umbilical cord is not providing a proper, like a sufficient blood supply for the baby to develop both upper and lower body. And so the body has favored upper body development and disfavored lower body development. What this means is anything from about the, the, uh, belly button downward is not fully developing. So that includes bladder and kidneys and part of the intestine and uh, bones of the lower body like pelvis and sacrum and legs and so on. And um, this is important because those organs are going to be put into function during the womb. So the kidneys and the bladder start functioning while the baby's in the womb and that, that that's, they start processing amniotic fluid. So that's not going to happen. So there's going to be developmental issues there. And um, 
And as he said, it's true. There are some cases of mermaid syndrome that they're able to perform surgeries that are, they're able to um, alleviate some of the symptoms and, and we were not a best case scenario. So we kind of knew uh, from week 18, we're gonna have a, an infant loss and a surviving twin. So we had this kind of a, a roller coaster period uh, of the second half of the pregnancy to um, sort of approach this idea. Um, so immediately we contacted our family, we contacted uh, our bishop and elders quorum president. Uh, I, I brought it up with my boss at work, but that's partly because my boss is a member of the church uh, at the time. At the time he was, it's a different boss now than I used to have, but he was a member of the church. So I felt like I could talk to him openly about this uh, scenario. And we just invited people to join us in fasting. We invited our family, invited the ward. Um, and of course, ward leaders spoke with stake leaders. So we became a known family on the stakes radar. Um, and we really talked about what we wanted in fasting. Uh, my wife and I had grown up in the church and we'd heard plenty of maybe the urban legends. Okay. Of, Oh, this is what they saw on the scans and we did a fast and everything changed. Sure. And we, we both kind of felt like that might be inappropriate. We just didn't, we didn't feel like that was the right thing to, to pray for in our, in our request. So for us, we were pretty pointed in our invitation. You know, what we are asking for is the miracle of both babies move forward in the pregnancy as long as they possibly can to give baby A the best possible development that baby A can get. Because we knew baby B wasn't gonna be compatible with life. So we just, we, we knew that up front. And uh, we didn't get anybody that tried to tell us any different, which was fantastic. We didn't expect anybody would say anything, but it was good to know that no one felt um, some desire to, I don't know, tell us to have a different faith about it. Um, and that's really kind of what we got. We got two babies delivered and um, part of the, the end of that pregnancy is worth mentioning. So as we come towards the very close of that pregnancy, we know where there's going to be a C-section. Uh, our medical professionals have already said, you know, these babies are both pretty small. We're really concerned that a natural birth could put so much stress that we come into an emergency. We recommend we do a C-section for the safety of the babies so we don't put them through the stress of a natural birth. And uh, we had no arguments about that, that was fine. So we had a date scheduled. Um, and we had a date scheduled that represented about 36 weeks total, which is a little early, tiny bit premature, but not a, not a lot. Um, and we're still going back for visits quite a lot because baby A is still growth restricted, a very small baby. Um, well, a little early at, a, at what represents about 34 and a half weeks, babies came, it was go time. Uh, and it's a Sunday morning and my wife had not really been briefed on this is what labor is gonna feel like. This is what it's like when you're going into labor. This is how it'll feel this is how often the contractions will come. She just, nobody really told her that because they assumed 
you're you're going to C-section. So why why explain this? So she's going into labor on a Sunday morning. And uh, I'm just like, well, I'm getting ready for church. We'll just I guess we'll bring you to church. You know, sorry, you feel so bad. (laughs) So um, she says, you got to call. Uh, up to the, to the emergency department, talk to whoever's on labor and delivery and, and get somebody on call, tell them about what I'm feeling and ask what we should do. She didn't say I'm in labor. She just said, I'm having lots of contractions and pain. So I explained this to the doctor and he's like, okay, you're going to get a liter of water. She's going to drink it pretty quickly. And if this all calms down in like 15 to 20 minutes, you're fine. But if it's not done in 30 minutes, it's go time. You're coming up to the apartment, to the, to the emergency room. You're delivering. That's it. It's go time. And I'm like, Oh, you're kidding. Right. He's like, no, no, no. This works. This is the determining factor. So, uh, I got her a liter of water. She drank a good amount of that. And and within 20 minutes, she's like, no, it's go time. This is not going away. Um, and in that 20 minutes, I had like cooked breakfast for myself. You know, she's like sitting on the, couch and I'm just like well I guess I'll get ready for my day uh no right right and so so um so yeah we we headed on up and although our immediate team that had been working with us all this time was not present they were off that day um they had briefed everybody else in their medical cohort hey I want you to know about this case. They had talked through our case multiple times. Everybody knew from, from like interns on up through the, the, the highest professionals. They knew our case. So when we came in, they're like, no problem. We know everything that's supposed to happen. We absolutely know your treatment plan and we're going to follow it precisely. No arguments. We're not going to, you know, discuss other treatment plans or any options. It's great. Um, and there's, and that was just a really surprising thing that uh you know our people couldn't be there but they had they had passed over everything they could to whoever was going to be on call that day um so we got exactly the care plan that was intended for us so um so we have a c-section uh they didn't argue with that they're hey we're doing this so we have a c-section in the midst of labor and delivery they've got to kind of slow things down enough to, to get her back into the surgical suite and start the process um so they they deliver these two babies by C-section. And yes, that baby A, that's that's my first daughter. She's she's small. She's less than four pounds when delivered. She's very small. Uh, she fits in a hand pretty well. Yeah. And then this other this baby B, uh, also my daughter. And we had already discussed what do we do with the bishop? We already discussed what we do. And the bishop was, you know, he's really trying to be comforting, but he's like, um, she's got to be born breathing. You can give her a name and a blessing. If she's not born breathing, you don't. Okay. You can like you can give her a name and a blessing, but she's supposed to be born breathing. So I'm like, okay, all right, well, we'll 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 let rest on that. Um and we are talking with our medical professionals. We kind of and we'd asked. How long, you know, how long will she survive outside the womb? And, uh, you know, he was, he was, I think, trying to be very honest. He said, maybe 40 minutes, maybe less. 
it's, it's very difficult to know. Um, so while they're in the surgical suite, they they brought this this little baby bee with with uh, mermaid syndrome over to mom. So mom got to see her kind of do some face to face time, and I got to hold her a little bit. And then you know we put two the two girls side by side. And the two girls side by side. I've got a picture of my hand over top of both of them, um, next to each other, and uh, and totally by accident I had kind of opened her eyes. I had a nurse that was like, hey, we, we tend to not do that. They, their eyes will open on their own. We don't want to do it early, but, you know, done now. So, and then they, they let me back into the other room. I was, I was sitting in another room waiting and they brought baby B to me to hold until mom was done with the surgical suite. And she already knew this is the process. We'd already been walked through what this would be like. So she had already said, you know, um, do the name and blessing, even if I'm not in the room, get it done. And she was breathing and I could feel this heat. I got, I got my hand underneath of that swaddling blanket right against her skin and could feel that heat of her back against my hand. And uh, had a, a dear friend that works at the hospital and was working that day. So he just came and visited us. He's just got a badge, he can go anywhere he wants. And I had texted to our home teacher at the time um, and to the bishop, and, and I, we'd sent some messages out. So my home teacher, he showed up. And so the three of us gathered, and uh, and we gave her a name and a blessing. And and then we sat, and they kind of sat with me for a bit, since my wife was still in, in the surgical suite being kind of cleaned up and put back together. <laughs> um, and we just, I just held her, and we kind of talked a little bit, as men do, and and made little jokes here and there. And, but every so often, you know, every minute or, or so, she would take this big gulp of air. Just, and then it would all soften, this really quiet breathing. And so, you know, I just every every minute or so, I was like, you're there. You're there with us. Like, I, I, I hear you. And for me, um, I got to look in her eyes, which, as I say, you know, the nurse kind of chided me, but you know, hopefully we don't get comments, but, uh, but yeah, I, I accidentally opened her eyes, but I looked into these eyes and it was just, just dark blue eyes. And it was like looking into deep wells of the ocean. It just was mesmerizing for me. And I felt really strongly this, this titanic person behind her eyes, this, this this idea to me was like someone filled the room with the spirit and it was so immense i i felt confident that i knew this person that was there and that i knew there was a person there behind those eyes um it was sad to feel that you know her body was flawed um it wouldn't it wasn't going to support life that was a very sad thing but there was this joyful, wonderful comfort to feel like there was a, a person there um, that very much wanted to be there uh, and had chosen to, to come and experience life even for such a brief time. And 
the rest of the day, um, we had a lot going on. It was, it, it felt like a busy day. Mom did come back into the room. Mom also held her for a time. There was a resident that was coming in every little bit. He'd, he'd check for a heartbeat and breathing. And, and eventually, you know, he kind of knew he was pulling out a phone. He was, he was, he was having to declare time of death, but the change that occurred. And I think there's a lot of people that talk about this, this impression they get when they're around someone who has passed away. The change that occurred just seemed um, really swift and very simple and clear. And, and it's changed to, to, from this feeling of like, there is a person there to, well, this is, this is just a body and that's okay. And, um, so we spent a little time with, with this little one in NICU. We were in and out of the hospital in a few days and uh, visiting the NICU to see our other baby. And I recall when we were being released, my wife was really worried. Um, it, we hadn't been sleeping with the baby in the room. So she had only, so we'd only been around this, this baby A uh, for little brief visits in the NICU. But we're ready to go home. We're ready to, we're discharged. And she's saying, I'm so worried. She's going to miss us and we're abandoning her. And, she, and I'm like, she isn't going to know because she, she doesn't know. It, it's not going to occur to her. But she asked me to give a blessing to this other baby before we left. So she's getting some stuff dealt with, uh, with her discharge. And she sends me to the NICU to go and provide a blessing. So it's just me. There's a few other babies as well in the NICU, but the nurses really just, just left us with some space. And um, getting to hold that daughter and give her a blessing was a really sweet experience. And I've done a, a few instances of doing baby blessings, doing little blessings in a hospital for a baby. Um, so it's kind of just sweet to do this for my own baby. And I found the words flowed really, really uh, quickly. Um, just immediately knowing what to say, just just came over me and and was able to give her a blessing and and then say, okay, well now we're gonna we get to go, we're gonna go home, and we'll come and see you every day. Um, that kind of experience was was a very different type of um, a different thing. I could definitely sense like, oh, there's there's someone here. This is a real person. But it just it just didn't seem to like fill the entire room with this feeling of absolute immensity. Mm -hmm. And I just took that as a note, like, OK, you know, this is a this is definitely a little spirit here, but it's just a little different because we know that we have all of our lives together. Yeah. With this other little baby, we had a brief moment. Um, so that's that was pretty kind of heavy. <laughs> yeah. Kenneth, that's that's an astounding experience, and it seems like, although that's pretty specific, and I don't know how many people have had the a, a similar experience. Um, I think a lot of people have struggled with infertility. Oh yeah, yeah. Struggled or uh, not struggled? Have lost an infant. Mm -hmm. and something that struck me about your story that is that I feel like is common and I'd love for you to comment on it, is an, an individual 
could, I feel like, easily get angry and say, hey, listen, I got my life in order. I, I became temple worthy. Mm-hmm. I, 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 um, sorry, I get temple worthy. I take my wife to the temple and I get sealed. All of these blessings line up. Like my ship has come in. I'm, I did it. Blessings are predicated upon obedience. I'm clearly being blessed right now. Like it's, oh, the hard times are over and the hard times are not over. Hard yeah. times aren't over until for this life ever. Talk to me about the perspective that you gained. Why, why isn't there any anger or was there anger that you wrestled with? Well, um, in that moment, I think a lot of it had been somewhat dissipated because we had from that week 18 anatomy week to delivery where we did have quite a roller coaster to feel through. Uh, we had two names chosen. We did use both names, which, you know, we didn't, we didn't toss anything out, but you know, we had two names chosen. We already had people aware, like, oh, well, you're going to need two of everything, you know, <laughs> and, and we, we had two of some things. Um, my wife was actually really eager to get a twin stroller. And so we got the twin stroller before week 18 and had this twin stroller sitting in our in our closet ready for use. And then at week 18, she just thought, oh, I've got to get rid of that now because we won't need a twin stroller. Um, I think both of us did get some of that sentiment of this isn't the way it's supposed to go. Mm-hmm. Um, so some of that had to be worked through. And I think that during those 18 weeks or kind of you know, 16 and a half weeks, there was, there was definitely some of that, uh, that emotional experience. And I also had an experience that kind of touched upon it after. So we've, we've come home, we've got a baby, we've got our surviving twin, we, we're having to deal with grief. And I remember thinking, well, maybe that's good enough. Maybe that's enough. We've done enough. We've given our best effort at having children, maybe that's enough. And at this point, we still have additional little frozen pairs at, at, our, at our fertility dock. So we've got more attempts we could do. And I'm just like, well, maybe we could just stop. We can, we can donate those. Um, you know, one child, we'll take care of one child. That'll, that'll be fine. Sure. Um, and I remember distinctly, I was commuting to work as this thought just kind of crossing my mind and um, while driving, I, I, I felt really overwhelmed with this, this sort of uh, kind of a waking dream, a little like a daydream, but it didn't feel like I'm inventing this. It felt like, hold on now. <laughs> no, you have something else here. And so in that very first experience, it was simply, I saw within my mind's eye, that I was holding a little baby in, you know, in our church building and, and providing a baby blessing uh, with, a, with, you know, a circle of men around me. And we're, we're doing another baby blessing. And um, there wasn't much to the experience. But the first words that I said are, um, this is the blessing you have required of me. And then that kind of closed off. And I finished my drive to work and I thought, well, that's. I mean, that's nice wishful thinking, but, and so this started to occur 
in kind of quiet moments. And I would see a little bit of this scenario play out in my mind's eye. And there were additional things going on. So I'd get this line and then I'd get this other line and then I'd have this other comment and it, and it started building. And it was always the same plus a little more. And there were two babies. So there was one and another. And then there was a, another daughter and there was a son. And there was a name. And uh, for both of the names, there was this little phrase, this is the name you've chosen. And this is what it means. And so I started to get this experience and I'm like, the same thing, plus a little more. Um, I think I better start writing this down. Uh, but also I thought, well, you know what? Maybe, maybe I'm wrong that it's been enough. So I finally talked to my wife about it and I, I said, oh, you know, I, I feel like maybe there's, we are supposed to keep going, keep trying the IVF. And at least just try as many times as we have the little frozen vials and we'll just see where it goes. But I think there's another daughter and I think there's a son. And I think we're supposed to keep trying it out. Um, and she was all too happy to keep going. She was surprised that I had considered we could just stop somewhere along the way. Um, and so eventually I did write it down. I wrote down both of these two blessings and the names and, uh, and I shared the names with her and, you know, she, she actually kind of disputed one of them, but, uh, but, uh, you know, otherwise we, we did go forward with those names, used them as, as, uh, as she approved. <laughs> um, and uh, in that process, I think there was also this reminder of like, there, there's someone else beyond the veil that knows me. It's not just people that have passed away. And I, I definitely think some of that could be informed by growing up in the era of like Saturday's Warrior and My Turn on Earth and uh, reading a lot of Jack Wayland books. And yes. um, <laughs> so I, I feel like there's there's a there's like a connection of like some of this that we use sometimes as our fiction culture comes with this grounding, gives you something to ground yourself in. Um, and some of it is the spirit needs to connect with something that you can grab hold of and say, this actually makes sense to me. Uh, so for me, that made sense for as much as my wife looked at me like, what are you really experiencing? How can you really claim that that's happening? Um, it was kind of what I needed to grab hold of and, and ground myself and say, yeah, this is this is real experiences. Yeah. The spirit speaks our language. Yeah. And that language is going to be different than the guy next to you. And um, so we do have a, a son and another daughter. We've had all of them. Uh, we've actually had multiples for all of our pregnancies, but we have not had any more infant loss. Uh, so with the, the next attempt, there were there was a triple. So with, when my son was born, there was a triple. And what they were able to see at the fertility doc was they were able to, he was a little more careful to make sure he got all of them the very first time. <laughs> 
So the very first time he's like, okay, let me make sure that, it's, that there's not one in there. I think we missed it last time. So he found out, oh, there's double. You got two. Okay, you got two again. And then we came back again and he's looking through. He's like, oh, we got three. We got three. Sorry, I did it again to you. <laughs> like, Doc, what's yeah. the deal here? <laughs> um, but with that one, it was a different experience. They, um, so they had three and, and eventually they came to us and said, okay, our imaging system, it's fine for what we need. But with the pair, there's, there's a single and a pair, we need to see better. And the imaging system we've got can't give us the contrast and the detail needed. So we need you to go, we need to do this handover earlier. So contact your team at your, your, your perinatal team, get that handover sooner because we got to see what's happening here. I think it's a dangerous condition, but I can't tell you for sure. I need somebody with better vision to diagnose it in terms of imaging. Um, so we get the date set up. Uh, and this is, I think, week nine, just a short time into the pregnancy. Week nine, we visit with our fertility doc and he's like, OK, I got three little little babies or a little like, I guess we're at, at, at uh, zygote stage at that time or maybe embryo, maybe. Um, yeah, I think it's I, I have trouble remembering the clinical terms now, but we used to know them. Yeah, we yeah. used to know. So we got three. We got three heartbeats. He's got it confirmed, showed us the imaging. Um, he says, when have you got your appointment for going to get imaging with, with you know, with your professional team, with your, with your, with your perinatal team? And my wife says, we've got our, our appointment tomorrow. So from, from today until tomorrow, that is a like, great, good, okay. You know, we, we definitely need to see better what's going on with this pair. Um, and of course, they're growing bigger, so that his images are getting better. But he's like, you really need to, to get into them. So the next day, very next day, this is about week nine. And we go in and the imaging tech is working with us. And um, she says, OK, I got one. But the pair, I've got visibility on the pair, but there's no heartbeats. Yeah. And she's like, and, I, and she does the whole bit. She's, she goes through a multiple times trying to make sure that she's got the aim and the, and the con, just all this stuff that she can as an imaging tech. And she's like, no, you have one baby. And, uh, and so then of course we talked to our perinatal specialist. It's the same doctor. He definitely knows us and they're able to look at the images better and they're able to determine um, what occurred is that it, it's um, I think I'm going to forget the actual vocabulary now, but it's that the amniotic, uh, fluid was separated. So they had, a, had an amniotic sac that had one barrier in between instead of two separate amniotic sacs. And then they were both pumping blood back and forth to the placenta. So they had umbilical cords that were connected to one another and to the placenta. So they're pumping blood to back and forth to each other and back and forth to the placenta. And, um, and that just couldn't be sustained. Yeah. Um, there are perinatal surgical procedures that can address that if it's caught early and we just didn't catch it early enough. And, uh, and, and really just overnight was the moment. So the next day we were down to one baby yeah. and that progressed totally normal. Um, my son was just, he just was gigantic. He, he was so big to my, to my eyes. And then of course to the, 
to the nursing. They're like, yeah, he's, he's a good, healthy baby. He's, he's totally fine. Nothing wrong. Um, so we went through that totally, totally normal uh, pregnancy. We visited less often, which was very strange for us. Our first pregnancy was like, okay, every, every two weeks, every three weeks, we're going to see you. And then they're like, yeah, come back in a month. We'll see you in a month. Wow. Yeah, maybe get, come back six weeks. <laughs> it's very surprising. Um, and then the third, the third pregnancy, we did have another twins, but uh, it was about week seven or so that the other stopped developing, and, and we just had one baby that progressed the remainder of the pregnancy and born healthy and and came home right away, no time in the NICU or anything, and so we just we just uh, thought this is this is wild. How do you how do you not spend time in the NICU? How do you not have you know weekly visits at the doctor? How are you telling us not to come back for six weeks? That's crazy. Yeah, be healthy. So, yeah, wow. Healthy, those healthy babies. I tell you what, something struck me. Um, you are clearly a person of deep faith, right? I mean, you are. After you've had this experience with your first pregnancy, I mean, you are having baby blessings being dictated to you. Yeah, yeah, and that that. That requires a lot of faith. And I think also, though, that that isn't the first story of huge amounts of faith that you shared with us. The first story or, or an earlier story is when you felt prompted, I, I hope I'm not putting words in your mouth, you felt prompted of what to fast for. And it wasn't to fast for the grandiose miracle. And I think I, I I forget and I'm 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 paraphrasing and I'll I'll look it up and, and put it in the in the notes here, but was it was it fourth Nephi when the Lord says to Nephi, I know that you won't ask amiss. You know, he oh. says, he says, I will answer whatever, I will give you whatever you pray for, because I know that you won't pray for something that is unrighteous or against my will. And I think, man. Kenneth, not a lot of us have enough faith to not pray for the huge miracle and to recognize right. that that's that's faith. Because at the end of the day, I don't want what I want. I want what God wants. And if I if I know what God wants, then I can fast for that and I can pray for that. Yeah, I definitely felt like we um, we had something really positive with that choice, with that decision to say, you know, the miracle would be that we get children. Yeah. You know, the miracle is that we have a healthy pregnancy. Um, we definitely felt the risks. Um, you know, my wife had risk factors that they clearly spoke about in very honest ways to us. Uh, the pregnancy had risk factors that they spoke about in very honest ways. And I think there was a, there was a sense of, you know, the miracle is just having this baby. It's um, it it felt like it would be a little careless. So I definitely agree. That's a really interesting touch point there. I had not myself thought of that connection. Um, but now the now the power of the ceiling, which is referenced there with Nephi, is something that that I feel is really an interesting thing to have learned about. Um, so we were married civilly and we later got sealed. 
And that ceiling power then, of course, extends to all of our children because they are born within that covenant. They're born after that, that time. So they're born within the covenant. Now, um, there's another experience that relates to that ceiling power that, that really touches upon that. And it, it's kind of a small series of experiences. Um, so we have one baby. We've been, we've been married for a good number of years. We definitely have got to know each other. And, um, and we've definitely gone through like the troubles of early marriage. Sure. So we have about a, a roughly six month old first child. And my wife is experiencing postpartum depression and, and kind of unresolved grief of infant loss. And I'm working, I'm traveling for work. So my boss was great. My like first line level boss was great about kind of cutting back on my work travel when this child was born, but we've gone about six months and he's like, I kind of need to put you out on a project. Uh, I can't have you sit at your desk all the time. And I got a project that someone's specifically requesting you by name. I got to make it happen. Mm -hmm. They know they want you in charge of, of this project. Um, I've got to do it. And, uh, and it's an airport project. So we're going to do two airports and we've, we're going to do Wi-Fi design for two airports. And at this point, we're doing physical design. We're going on site. We're surveying. There's a lot of presence needed. Right. So I'm working with another guy. He's a, he's a fantastic peer. Uh, I definitely love him. He, he and I talk about religion now and then. Not a lot, but I know he's a man of faith and, and I can talk to him about issues of, of faith or the scriptures. And so he's requested me. He knew right, if I've got this job, I, I need him on this job. Um, but what it's going to entail is, uh, is a number of months of traveling to site, being on site. He's actually not very far. He's uh, driving distance away, but he knows the rest of the team is probably going to have to fly in. So he helps me kind of pick a few names. Like who, who are we going to get on this project? He, he makes his suggestions and kind of compares notes with me. And we put together a team of, uh, I think we had nine of us total. So a project manager and himself and then myself and then additional, uh, I guess that's another six teammates. And that's both from my own office and from our Mexico office. So we've got a lot of guys there. We're all men. We're all fathers. Um, and, uh, and I'm going to be there for in total, I'm going to be there for 11 weeks. Some of the weekends I'm going home and some of the weekends I'm staying there at site. And my wife is at home taking care of a baby. And suddenly I'm going to be missing all week long. And some weekends I might choose to stay. So, uh, she opts for something else. She decides to travel home. So we're in North Carolina. Home is Washington State. So she travels across the country to be with her family uh, to help her deal with postpartum and deal with raising a baby um, that's about that's a, about six months old. And and we're still dealing with some of those those issues that probably could have been dealt with as an early couple, but we hadn't quite dealt with them. Mm -hmm. And. So a couple of weeks in, she kind of sends this email. I'm, this is what I've decided. I'm traveling. My parents are going to help me with the cost. My sister's going to help me with the cost. 
we're gonna, I'm gonna travel there, I'm gonna be there. And then when you're done with this project, you know, let's talk, let's, let's sort these things out. Yes. Now I misunderstood the email and I think it's important to note real early on, I misunderstood and misread right off the bat and, and took it as an ultimatum, which it was not intended as. Um, but that there might be a good that came out of that because that was quite shocking. So my first, my first reaction was like, well, fine, we can just split it all apart. We'll get into a custody battle. We'll get into a battle about all kinds of stuff. We'll just quit. We, I've had enough. We can just quit. Mm -hmm. And um, so I, one of the weekends, one of the weekends that I'm staying up at, at this customer site in a hotel, just staying in a hotel, uh, I don't really have a place to go for the weekend to do. Not not much of a tourist. And uh, so I'm just staying in, in the hotel and reviewing documents that we've done, our engineering work, um, some of our design documents. And I think I decided not to go out to eat. I'd kind of got tired of dining out at little establishments. And I just was like, I'm just, I think I'm just going to not eat tonight. Um, so it's a Saturday or a Sunday. I'm not sure exactly which day of the weekend. But I'm sitting there alone in the hotel. And, um, and it's as though there's a door that sort of comes into existence there in the room. And someone opens the door and behind the door is this immense light. And this individual comes through and closes the door and they individually are, are bright. And, um, and I immediately recognize the company. It's it just immediately, I know who this is. And, and this is the same person that I could feel there holding my my baby holding that little girl i knew immediately this is her presence um and she came and sat down beside me and she offered a testimony to me she said that you should not split up this family you are sealed and i am a part of this and i am not there to prevent you but I have power and blessings in the place where I am because of that ceiling. And that was really impressive. I never thought of how the ceiling extends beyond the veil. I had never spent time thinking about it. I didn't have doubts. I just never really reflected on it. And so her testimony was really a, an impressive thing. Um, however, I don't think it changed my opinion right away. I still felt really upset. I still felt a lot of anger and, uh, she went away and, uh, later she came back with another person and it just seemed, um, entirely clear that there were two people and they sat on either side of me. And so this daughter that I knew that I had met that I, well, I say I'd met, I had felt her, her presence there as I held her kind of said the same message again. And then, um, and then this other individual introduced herself 
as my daughter. And um, I said, you uh, should not split up this family. You are sealed and I am meant to come into this family and you and your wife are my parents and I am not there to prevent you, to, to help you with this. And um, it was really interesting to me because, uh, of course, I knew that with this, with this daughter that had passed, I knew her body was flawed, her physical body. Um, but she walked in on two legs. She didn't, she didn't come floating in on a, you know, she walked in on two legs. Her body was whole, her spirit body, her, her spirit, spiritual body was whole. And it was a reminder, you know, she, um, she came into this life with a flawed body and that's unfortunate, but she had a full and complete whole body. And that, and that is something she looks forward to. And this other little individual, um, you know, in my mind was, was something like, nine years old or so, seemed like a small child and sat beside me and I could see little like pigtails coming off of her head. And I just felt like I absolutely could see this person, although I was alone in the room. And both of them really testified to that power of the ceiling, um, the importance of it to them individually and to our family as a, as a whole. And and then they both left. And um, for me, there was just an immense feeling of love and an overwhelming and large feeling of love that I, um, I knew my, I, like I knew this one individual, I knew that her, her presence just, when she walked into the room, it was like, I absolutely recognize that is the same feeling. And this other individual who I could say, that's a distinct individual, but I don't know them. Um, and the feeling of, of immediate and immense love from both individuals. Um, and that really changed my attitude pretty quick to feel like both individuals had come and, and, and had something very important to say about our family and about the sealing power that they wanted to have. Um, so, it still is difficult, but it, it was it it created a really different sense of why we would have a ceiling in our in our life. Um, you know, I, I, so that's um, that that really changed my attitudes a lot about why why are we sealed. Why do we stay together when we're married and we have troubles? Um, yeah. So, I mean, real quick, I don't, I don't want to take your whole evening. I really appreciate you spending the time, but an unbelievable experience, a fantastic experience, but that doesn't make your marital problems go away. So what do you do? Yeah. Well, um, I think first was I, I reread the email and I, with a different perspective. And was able to look and say, like, well, this isn't an ultimatum. Mm -hmm. um, it's not. That's not quite what it is. So that's helpful. Uh, so I, you know, reviewing that experience and that attitude that I had, that that was a quick adjustment. But also, um, it gave me the reflection that um, 
that we, we do have individuals beyond the veil that are really aware of us. Um, there, were, there were descriptions of, I want this to happen in that email that I was able to say, you know what? I can find a way to make that happen. Yeah. It, some simple behavior changes can make that happen. So yeah. that certainly. And then I think um, it really changed my perspective on the struggles we were having. Um, when we married civilly, I had one divorce previous. Mm-hmm. And I looked back sometimes like, well, that was really easy. It was really easy. A bit of paperwork, move apart, and that's done. Um, and this gave this perspective that said, you have, um, you have something of eternal weight that, that is available because of the ceiling power, not because of you individually, but because of the ceiling power, you have this thing of eternal weight and eternal magnitude. And um, maybe your little struggles and your feelings, um, even if they're valid, are kind of small compared to that thing of eternal magnitude and weight. Um, I think that's something really valuable for me, for myself. Uh, It changed my perspective on the struggles that we have, and it changed my perspective on maybe being right or or, or getting, getting my wife to view me as being right. Definitely changed because I thought, well, actually, it's not maybe for us, but it's for these individuals that have said, this ceiling is a blessing and a power for me. Yes. Um, instead, of, instead of thinking, oh, it's from, it's from my exaltation. The temple teaches us it's from my exaltation. Well, no, maybe it's not. Well, I mean, it is, but I mean, maybe it's more so much more. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think that, that definitely changed. We, we did still have struggles. Uh, but it definitely changed my perspective on why those struggles come into our life and why some of them might not be resolved um, and how to go about letting them lie and dissipate on their own. Um, I do think that uh, there's there's some marital therapists that, that accept the idea that there's going to be trouble and you just can't fix everything and you just kind of let it lie and some things will go away on their own. And there may be some therapists that say, no, we've got to get things in the open. We've got to air out the dirty laundry and resolve things. And I definitely started to lean more on that first idea. Like there may be some things that just don't change. Mm-hmm. And, and if I can let go of wanting to change those things, whether it's about myself or about my spouse or about our relationship, maybe that'll be okay to yeah. let go. Um, I love that idea and- that it's, it's a combination. It's a combination of perspective. You know, you said your perspective changed, but that also you changed some behavior. Yeah. It seems like it requires both. It requires an equal yeah. perspective, but also it, you know, it's a if if I'm a complete dirtbag, it's not fair for me to tell my wife, well, you just gotta put up with it because eternally I'm gonna turn out pretty good. So you just have to wait like a couple hundred <laughs> years and then I'll be a pretty good investment. Like, eh, I don't think that's how it's supposed to work out. That would be a really tough sell. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh man, it would. 
but I, I do think that perspective was a big change for me. Um, it really helped me to to believe that what I was doing was not make was not something to be proud of. Mm-hmm. I think sometimes I felt prideful that I had done many steps to move from like my military um, self identity to something different. Um, I often told people that as a soldier, I was very callous. I, I got really tough and hardened and that extended into spiritual things. It was, I, I felt tough. I, I don't, stuff doesn't touch me. And I was only a multimedia illustrator. I was not, I was not some deep, hard soldier. I wasn't infantry. Um, <laughs> but to your point though, anybody can develop calluses. Anybody can develop yeah. spiritual calluses if that's what you want. Yeah. Well, Laban and Lemuel give us this great example, right? Yeah. Laban and Lemuel give this fantastic example, and Nephi tells them real clearly to their face that the spirit tried to speak with you, an angel spoke to you, but you were past feeling. Yeah. And in my teenage years, I've had a bishop tell me about that and say, and if I think what you're experiencing is you have made yourself past feeling. You're having difficulty with feeling and receiving the Holy Ghost because of choices that you've made. And um, so I, I that since I think 16 years old, I've thought about that reference that going past feeling. And then as a soldier, I definitely felt like I I toughened myself um, purposefully. And sometimes against spiritual impressions. Mm-hmm. And so that um, that softening process is also a similar choice based process to to become soft and receptive. Um, so yeah. for me, it was a, a little bit like the experience of Alma of having someone say, you're really in the wrong place right now. And I'm here to help you turn around. Yeah. Uh, Alma the Younger, that is, you know, and that experience that's described for Alma the Younger, I feel like, wow, that I mean, that must have been a really personal thing. And it, I think we quickly think of it as, um, oh, it was just some angel. It was just some angel that came and spoke to him. And uh, and of course, we later have that angel saying, well, your father prayed for this. And and then later we have that out, angel come back and say, hey, I've been watching you and you've done these wonderful things and i'm like that must have been a lot more personal it must have been someone much more closely connected to him um to to say i get to come back and watch over you and see that you have made the changes that i told you to make and to see the effect it's had on you um so i have not had any other visits from my daughter no other experience that I would that I would constitute as as that. But I do have this second daughter that uh, when I gave her that blessing, um, you know, it was word for word. Everything that I uh, had, ima- had had kind of seen, I say imagined, but everything I had seen in my mind's eye. Um, and the first words were, this is the blessing you have required of me. Wow. And, and that just. That also kind of sticks with me that that she knew uh, enough to say, yeah, I expect you to be there. You can't be absent. Um, I won't accept absenteeism from you. you. You've got to deliver. 
and I require this of you uh, instead of I request this of you or I invite you to, you know, it, it was very forceful. Wow. Well, there have been a lot of fantastic uh, things that you shared with us today, and I really, really appreciate it. I think there are a lot of people that can relate to various aspects of your story. So thank you so much for being willing to share those with us. Oh, you're welcome. 